So we are, I'm just going to jump into the text today. We are in Amos chapter 5. The temptation was to preach all of Amos chapter 5, but the first 17 verses of Amos chapter 5 are a particular poetic structure. Uh, it is one unit. And then uh, in verse 18, he begins to deal with the day of the Lord. And so he kind of, uh, it, it's therefore because of what he's preached in this uh, poetic piece at the beginning of Amos 5, that he lays some foundation. Uh, the poetry here is not unusual for Hebrew. Uh, in Hebrew, a lot of times poetry takes various forms, and it's, it's found in the structure as much as it is found, it might be found in the rhythm or the rhyme. More often than not, when we think of a poem or we think of poetry, we think of rhyme or rhythm, uh, where words that sound alike. When I was a kid, that's what a poem was. You can make words that sound alike. You read Dr. Seuss, and it's very poetic. Uh, in Hebrew, poetry is not always based as much on the, the, the sound of the words as it is based on structure. And that's what you have here. This is what's called a Hebrew chiasm. And in a chiasm, it's kind of a pyramid structure. At the beginning of the chiasm, y'all stick with me for a minute. I, I, some of you are looking at me like, I don't care about that. It's important. There's reason for it. You'll, you'll understand when I get there. At the beginning and at the end... Uh, Think of it as like a, a, a pointer, okay? So here at the beginning and the end, he'll say something, he'll make statements that communicate the same thought or the same idea. And so he's going to begin by making a thought uh, of a warning of judgment, uh, sometimes just simply referred to as the lament. This is what's going to happen to Israel. It's coming. Now, I call it a warning because he does give an opportunity to repent in the next part. So you, at the beginning, in the first few verses, in the last couple verses, you have him saying, look, Israel's about to get punished. Right after that, he, you have him asking Israel to respond, to seek him. And you see that balance in, in verses 4 through 6 against verses 14 and 15. So you see him giving that, that call to seek him. And then as you move further out, verse 7 and then verses 10 through 13 balance, they're kind of parallel. They talk about how Israel has perverted justice. And then if you move past that, in the first part of verse 8 and in verse 9, you see his declaration that God is sovereign, and it all points to one phrase. Now, sometimes in a chiasm, it may point to one large thought. It could actually point to a paragraph. It could point to a whole sentence. It could point to a verse. But in, in this particular chiasm, you have all the way from verse 1 up here, verse 17 here, pointing to the fourth phrase in verse 8, Yahweh is his name. He is the Lord and he has a name. He's a personal God. And that's, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. And we're going to walk through the, 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 the structure, but I'm going to preach it. I'm not going to, I'm going to preach the, the parts together, okay? I'm going to preach the first part and the second part of the chiasm together. So we'll have five points that end with essentially Yahweh is his name. There is one God, there's only one God, and he has a name. And Israel, above any other nation, ought to understand that. They should remember that, but they've missed it. Let's read the text. Listen to this message that I'm going to sing a, for you a lament house of Israel. She has fallen. Virgin Israel will never rise again. She lies abandoned on her land 
no one with no one to raise her up. For the Lord God says, the city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. And the one that marches out a hundred strong will have only 10 left in the house of Israel. For the Lord says to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not seek or go to Gilgal or journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will certainly go into exile and Bethel will come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Or he will spread like fire throughout the house of Joseph. It will consume everything with no one at Bethel to extinguish it. Those who turn justice into wormwood, those who throw justice to the ground, the one who made Pleiades and Orion, who turns darkness into dawn and darkens day into night, who summons the water of the sea and pours it out over the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. He brings destruction on the strong and it falls on the fortress. They hate the one who convicts the guilty at the city gate and they despise the one who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact a grain tax from him, you will never live in the houses of cut stone you have built. You will never drink the wine from the lush vineyards you have planted. For I know your crimes are many and your sins innumerable. They oppress the righteous, take a bribe, and devour, deprive the poor of justice at the city gates. Therefore, those who have insight will keep silent at such a time, for the days are evil. Pursue good and not evil, so that you may live. And the Lord, the God of armies, will be with you as you have claimed. Hate evil, love good, establish justice at the city gate. Perhaps the, the God of armies will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore... The Lord, the God of armies, the Lord says there will be wailing in the public squares and they will cry out in anguish in all the streets. The farmer will be called on to mourn and professional mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards for I will pass among you. The Lord has spoken. Now, I'm going to pause and just give you a reminder. Those of you that have been in growth groups, as you're studying Amos, you're getting a little bit more of the background. It's helping form that foundation and gain an understanding of where we are. But I want to remind you, because it's important every week, but it's certainly important, especially important today, that we understand the historical background. If you'll remember, when Israel came into the promised land, they were a united kingdom for only a short period of time. And then after David and Solomon passed away, you had division in the kingdom. You had uh, the southern kingdom, which is often referred to as Judah, and the northern kingdom, which was the majority of the tribes, the northern ten tribes, became known as Israel. Amos was a prophet who lived on the border of those two, but his prophecy, his declaration throughout the book of Amos is aimed at Israel. He's prophesying against Israel, the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes. And when Amos says, she has fallen, virgin Israel will never rise again. Many might think, well, wait a minute, there's, a, there's still an Israel now. Was, was Amos wrong? No, Amos was not wrong. Amos was making his proclamation of those northern ten tribes. And not long after Amos' proclamation, the northern nation fell to the Assyrian Empire and was utterly destroyed. You've heard the term, the lost tribes of Israel. This is them. That, those 10 tribes were utterly destroyed. The, the leaders, the, the property owners, 
uh, families were, 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 they were taken out of Israel. They were spread from as far as the east is to the west across the Assyrian Empire. Brothers were separated from sisters. Husbands separated from wives. Children separated from their parents. Uh, that was the Assyrians' uh, mode, uh, modus operandi, so to speak, how they operated when they conquered a nation. And so the northern tribes of Israel, when, when Damascus fell, uh, Samaria fell, In 722 B.C., the northern tribes, Israel as a nation, was lost, and it was gone for good, never to return. God kept his promise to Abraham and the patriarchs to redeem the world by sending the Messiah, but he sent that Messiah through the tribe of Judah, right? He sent the Messiah through, uh, through the southern kingdom that existed for another 140 years and then eventually was never, never completely destroyed. And so I want you to keep that in mind because when Amos makes this declaration about Israel, it came to pass a short period of time after Amos's prophecies. He was warning them of what was going to happen if they did not turn around, seek the Lord and repent, knowing that because of where they were already headed, they weren't going to repent. And so I want to walk through this with that information in mind because he begins with this lament. In fact, he says, I'm going to sing for you. If that's not an indication that there's poetry involved here, uh, nothing is. I'm going to sing for you a lament, house of Israel. She has fallen. The virgin Israel will never rise again. She lies abandoned on her land with no one to raise her up. For the Lord God says, the city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left, and the one that marches out a hundred strong will only have ten left in the house of Israel. That is balanced in this poetic structure with verses 16 and 17. Therefore, the Lord God, the God of armies, the Lord says, there will be wailing in the public squares, there will be, there will, they will cry out in anguish in all of the streets, the farmer will be called on to mourn. The professional mourners will wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass among you. The Lord has spoken. Amos begins and ends this chiasm with the declaration that Israel will fall to its enemy. And Israel will be utterly destroyed. He hasn't told us exactly why yet in in this passage. You picked up on it if you've been around for chapters 3 and chapter 4 and even his his declaration against Israel back in chapter 2. He's going to get there in this lament, but he's given them the declaration of God's judgment. Now, it's a little challenging here because the declaration seems assured, and it is assured. God knows that they're not going to repent. He's going to give them an opportunity in the next verse to seek him. I want to pause here for just a moment because certainly the nation of Israel is about to be destroyed because of its national sin, how it's turned against God. That does not mean that every individual within that nation is going to be destroyed. In fact, he promises that there will be a remnant. You see that in this verse or in this passage, and you'll see it again later in Amos. A remnant are those who truly seek him when all of the nation has kind of turned their back and they've turned against God, a God who once blessed them 
And, and the nation as a whole has turned its back against that God, and, and they have begun to, to, to lie. They've begun to accept unrighteousness, but the nation turns its, backs on, its back on God. God still will hear the remnant. Those who are willing to cry out to him, even in the midst of the national destruction, God still has a message for them. He still has hope for them. Now, I have said this when I introduced Amos a few weeks ago, and when we talked about this message to Israel. I do not believe, in fact, that was on July, the weekend of July 4th, so July the 3rd. I don't, I don't believe that the United States of America is a theocracy like Israel. I don't believe that, 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 God, that the United States was ever God's chosen nation. But I do believe that a God who is sovereign over nations, if you go back and you read the history of the founding of, of the United States of America, you will find people who came to this land seeking God. You will find people who, who established the colonies based on their faith. You'll find leaders in, in the early days when, when the Constitutional Congress was struggling with uh, how they were going to form and how they were going to establish the, the initial rules for our, our nation, even before we became a nation. When the Continental Congress was meeting, they were struggling and they were, they were battling it out and, and it almost came to a complete impasse until one of the Christians in the Continental Congress stood up and said, we need to pray. And they asked a local pastor to come and lead in prayer. And as that pastor led in prayer, God moved. And, and when you read the, the founding and some of the early things that took place in this nation, I don't believe that you can get away from the idea that God's hand was on establishing this nation. And we're not the only one. God, God is a sovereign God who allows nations to rise and nations to fall. But in the case of the United States, you see God move in a, in a miraculous way time and time again. And so I, I, I don't want to make a direct equivalent here, but I do want you to see something. I want you to notice that a nation who once sought after God as a whole that comes to a place where they completely turn their backs on God, God will deal harshly with that nation as a people. It does not mean that he'll forget about the remnant, but it does mean that he'll bring judgment upon that nation. And I'm afraid that what we've seen in the last few decades, in particular in this nation, has led our nation, our culture, our society down a path that unless we repent... And I, I honestly believe it's too late for the nation as a whole. I believe God's judgment has come and is coming on our nation. And so we as a people need to hear the words that Amos had for the remnant, for those who would seek him. These are the words. Seek me and live. Seek me and live. Who's me? Yahweh the one true God who Israel said they believed in, whom they called God. In fact, whom Israel would even make periodic journeys to these special shrines, these special places, so that they could go worship the God to receive the blessing that their, that their forefathers had re received at these places of worship. Amos mentions three of them in particular. He mentions Bethel. Do not seek Bethel or Gilgal or journey to Beersheba. 
Let me give you a little bit of, of, of insight because if you're like me and you're not a, an Old Testament scholar, uh, you'll, you may have forgotten or may have to go look it up every time. Okay, what happened at Bethel? I, I, I know from a little bit of Hebrew I can remember that the word Bethel means house of God. Okay, that's what the, there's two words there in the original language. And so certainly that represents the presence of God. That Bethel is a place where God first really spoke to Abraham when he came to the promised land. You see it in Genesis 28, 19, where Jacob then named it the house of God. Bethel represented the place where God spoke and, and would, came to a relationship with the patriarchs, the early leaders of the people of Israel. And so shrines had been established at Bethel, a place of worship so that you could go worship God. You could go worship him at Bethel. But the problem is when the kingdom divided, Jeroboam decided that he didn't want people worshiping God there. He wanted to, to kind of lead them a different direction. So he put a golden calf at Bethel as a part of the shrine. He put it at another place that Amos mentions over in Amos chapter 8 too. He put a golden calf at Dan. Man, does that not bring back images? What happened to you know, when Moses came down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments? You, you knuckleheads, don't you realize that golden calves are trouble? Don't go there. And yet he had built a, a golden calf so that they could go worship the Lord as they worshiped at the shrine of Bethel, the place that was supposed to be a place where they could interact with the holy God, Yahweh. And yet here they're going there to receive their blessing, to say that they had been where God speaks and God's going to be with them. And then they go back home and they think they have the Lord with them. And, and, and he says, don't go to Bethel. Wait a minute. That was, Bethel was kind of their church. Bethel and Gilgal and Beersheba were like places of worship for them. Don't go to your place of worship. Stick with me for a moment because then he says, or go to Gilgal. Gilgal was where they first took possession of the land when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River. They came in to, to, to a place called, that, that they called Gilgal. They set up 12 stones that represented the, the Lord providing the promised land for them. After all of those years in the desert, they crossed the Jordan. They come to Gilgal. They, they're prepared to, to attack Jericho and, and all the great things. And so this was a great place of remembrance. And Gilgal in particular represented for them the inheritance of the promised land. God, because you are God's people and because God is with you and he's spoken to you, he's given you an inheritance. So Gilgal was representative of their inheritance that they had in their relationship with the Lord. So they would go to Gilgal to worship. And then he says, and don't go to Beersheba. What Beersheba represented the presence of God. In fact, all three of the, the first three patriarchs met God. And Beersheba was a special place for him. So there was a shrine established there. Back in Genesis chapter 21, 22, Abimelech, a, a foreign king, meets Abraham there with the, the leader of his army. And he looks at Abraham. And, and after seeing all that God was doing in Abraham's life, he, Abimelech, the, the, this, this foreign king who did not know the Lord, said, certainly God is with you wherever you go. And Beersheba came to represent God's presence with his people, wherever they went. And so these three shine, uh, shrines that Amos calls him out for represent God who called out to them and, 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 and made them his people at Bethel. God who promised he'd be with them everywhere that they went. God with them. 
And it represented an inheritance that they had that they could only receive from Yahweh in Beersheba. And Amos is saying, don't go there. Don't go looking for what he has to give you. Don't go looking for the inheritance. Go look for him. Do you hear the difference? How many, how many people show up at church because they're looking for something God can give them? The blessing or even the encouragement or the wisdom. When God says, seek me with all your heart and you'll find me. Look, I'm the guy who just wrote a dissertation on the importance of church membership, in particular how pastors ought to actually even be church members. I believe it's important for us to plug into a local congregation, to serve in a local congregation, to become a part of a church family. I believe that the New Testament points to that. It teaches that. So I'm not telling you don't go to church, but I'm telling you if you show up at the place of worship to seek anything other than God himself, you're there for the wrong reason. We're here to seek him. Amos calls him out. I can't help but note that the promise of these three great shrines that the people of Israel were going to, hoping to somehow connect with God without actually seeking him, that the promise of these three great shrines lines up with the promise that we have in Christ. In Christ, God met us just like he did Abraham at Bethel. In Christ, we find out God is here. Christ is called Emmanuel, God with us, both in the Old Testament and the New, in the prophecy of Isaiah as well as in Matthew. In Christ, we find that God has come here to meet us. In Christ, we find a God who is with us wherever we go. And in Christ, we find a, a, a promise of an inheritance that, that you don't get anywhere else. The, the three things that, that Israel was looking for in their holy places, some of those holy places that had even replaced the worship of the one true God with graven images, what they were looking for in their holy places is the same thing that the human heart yearns for that can only be found in Christ and Christ alone. Yahweh, Jehovah, Yahweh is his name. He is the one and only true God in whom that we can find hope, true life, his presence. Seek him and live. We live in an age, even in the church, where a lot of people seek doctrine. They seek theology. They seek understanding. We live in a time, and this is not new. It's happened all throughout history. Uh, it's been amazing to me to, to read some lectures from, from the Yale lecture series from 1894 with, with preachers who were warning against the health and wealth gospel. We, we live not just in a time, but we are a people who want to get ours. And if we think somehow we can 
We can say the right words. We can go to the right places. We can visit the right shrines. We can put the right marks on our foreheads or whatever to gain God's favor so that we can gain health and gain wealth. We'll do that. And all the while, God is saying, seek me. Seek my face. Seek a relationship with me. Knowing with his, with his opportunity and his call for repentance. He goes on in verse 6, saying, Seek the Lord and live. He'll spread like fire throughout the house of Joseph. It'll consume everything. No one in Bethel to extinguish it. You come back down to, <coughs> I'm sorry, uh, go down to the end of the chiasm, and he comes back to it where he says, Pursue good and not evil so that you might live. And the Lord, the God of armies, will be with you as you have claimed. They wanted God's presence. They claimed his presence. They didn't seek him. They claimed to be followers, but they weren't following. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the city gate. Perhaps the Lord, the God of armies, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Those who truly will repent and seek him will find forgiveness. The chiasm thereafter a call for us to seek him, not seek what he offers, but to seek him personally, then moves to the, the understanding that this nation has already turned a corner. In verse 7, he says, those who turn justice into wormwood and throw righteousness to the ground. Justice here represents kind of that courtroom idea of 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 what is right. Wormwood is, 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 represents a bitterness or a bitter injustice. So he's essentially saying you reject justice, you reject what's right, but you hold on to what's bitter and what's wrong. It, it, it's the, the philosophical idea of right and wrong. It, you, you no longer accept what's just, what's right, you accept what's wrong. You call black white. You call right wrong, and you call wrong right. You, you, you say that sin's no longer sin, but you say that righteousness is sin. And, and you as a, a people have come to a point where you've completely stepped away from what God says is true, and what God says is true, you, says is un, you say is untrue, and what, what God says is a lie, you call truth. Man, if you can't see that in the news today, you're blind. When leaders in our nation stand up and, and, and give testimony in front of Congress or they stand up in front of a news crew and they say, when asked with a simple question, how do you define a woman? And they say, well, I, you, you really can't. Yes, you can. God created them male and female. And we live in a world that cannot declare what is true, true. We're so confused. We're so lost that we can't even, we, we can't even confess God's truth to be true. That's the issue here. They, they've come to the point where what was right, they didn't see as right. What was just, they didn't see as just. 
And then he says in the next part of verse seven, you throw righteousness to the ground. The word righteousness in Hebrew here has to do more with relationships. Whereas the first one has to do with just truth, right and wrong, okay? The idea of justice there, the, the, the root of that word has more to do with just black and white, right is wrong. The word righteousness, when he calls them out for, for their handling of righteousness, they throw righteousness to the ground. It has more to do with relationships. Do you treat others rightly? Do you, do you show care and compassion? Here, my mind first immediately went to what's happened to marriage in our nation over the past five decades. Where our, our most intimate, most personal relationships have become throwaway relationships if they don't meet my needs, if they don't make me feel good. Do you do what's right in your relationships with other people? How do you treat other people? Now, he's going to expound on that, not just in the most intimate personal relationships, but he expounds on that in the second half of the chiasm that is a little bit more, uh, uh, he fleshes out more when he says, you even hate the one who convicts the guilty. So this guy has committed an egregious act. He's stolen or he's murdered. And, and this guy who's righteous, this, this righteous judge convicts him. You get mad at him. You get mad at the one who stood up for righteousness and justice. You're mad at the one who convicted the guilty. And then you despise those who speak with integrity. You don't like those people who say black is black and white is white. You don't like those folks who call truth what it is. You want them to be more ambiguous. You want them to be careful about their pronouns that they use. You can't say what's right. You can't say what's true. Those who speak with integrity become despised. Now think about this. Amos is preaching to a congregation in the early 8th century B.C. 2,800 years ago. Did you even know that they had that problem back then? We've got it on the news today. But there's nothing new under the sun, Solomon would say. The human heart filled with sin rejects righteousness and rejects truth. It always has and it always will. And so Amos is, is preaching against those who, who would cast away truth and call it untrue, or they would accept unrighteousness. And then he goes on to say what this has led to, as you hate the truth tellers and you despise those who speak with integrity, therefore it is, it is led to this. You, it's all about you. You trample the poor, the wealthy flourish, the righteous are oppressed. Ultimately what that's going to lead to is you're never going to get to experience the fulfillment of all that you hoped you would, you, you would receive because of your disobedience. Justice has been perverted in Israel. Right has been called wrong. Wrong has been called right. Relationships have been discarded. People, if they get in the way, are just a speed bump to the wealthy and those in power. Justice has been perverted, 
But here's the good news, folks. Even in a nation where the majority or the culture has turned completely against God, even when they've turned their backs completely on God, even when they say there is no God, maybe they call him the big spaghetti monster in the sky. You see that on Facebook. They've denied God. They've turned their backs on God. They've called right wrong. They've called wrong right. They can't figure out the difference between a man and a woman. They don't understand what marriage is. Even when a culture has gone that far, Amos says, God is still sovereign. He still sits on his throne. In the chiasm, the first half of it, the beginning of verse 8, verses 8, you would call it phrases A through C, the first three phrases of verse 8, he declares that God is still sovereign over all of nature. He's the one who put the stars in the sky. He's the one who arranged the heavens. He's the one who turns darkness into dawn. He's the one who turns dark, darkens the day into night. He's the one who summons the waters of the sea. He's the one who drew their boundaries. He's the one that pours it out, sends the rain and pours it out over the entire surface of the earth. He is sovereign over all of nature. He is sovereign over, over the skies. He is sovereign over the earth. He is sovereign over the seas. He's sovereign over the heavens. He is still sovereign over all that you can see and all that you can't see. He is still God. It may look like everything around you is falling apart. It may look like your nation is crumbling. It may look like righteousness has been denied. It may look like evil is winning. He still reigns on his throne. And not only does he reign over nature, he still reigns over the affairs of men. In verse 9, you see the second half of that chiasm. He brings destruction on the strong and it falls on the fortress. God still reigns over even those who seem to be undefeatable. Nations will fall and nations will still rise when he calls them because he's still God. He is sovereign. Sometimes in life, when everything seems to be fall, to fall apart, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that he is God. There may be things that we don't understand. I heard a story this morning in our, our growth group of a horrible cr crime incident that took place in our, in our community a couple months ago. It, it's unfathomable. It's unbelievable. How, and we wonder, how can that happen? It does not add up. It doesn't make sense. There's a lot of things like that. There's a lot of things that we see that we struggle with. They don't add up. But our hope is not found in what we see, it's what we can't see. We saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 a little while ago. July is a tough month for us. Golly, every time we get here, this is tough. Today's the 24th. Katie was born on July the 29th, 1989. Passed away July the 1st, 2004. July's a tough month. That's why we generally take our vacations in July. We like to get away usually over one of those periods over the time she was born, over the time that she passed, just because there's so many memories and it's so hard. But one of the anthems that carried 
me, and I know Susan to some extent, that we would sing regularly when we were, I was pastor at First Baptist Church May. We sang it this morning. Is that old hymn? It's actually, it's not that old. It was written by the Gaithers in the late 60s, early 70s. People think it's an old hymn. It's not. It's called Because He Lives. Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Because He Lives, All Fear Is Gone. We didn't sing the second verse today. The second verse says, How sweet to hold a newborn baby and to feel the pride and joy he gives. We always change that. When I sang it, it always gets an S on front of that. So it's, we feel the pride and joy she gives. Because I only had daughters, so. But sweeter still, the calm assurance. This child can face uncertain days because he lives. I don't understand all of the evil that happens around me. And I don't understand why God allows some of the evil that he allows to happen around us. I don't understand and maybe never will. Though I've seen the results of it, I've seen how God used Katie's birth, her life and her death to further his kingdom. I've seen how he used it to grow us. I've seen how he impacted the church at May. I've seen how he's impacted this church. I've seen how God used that. But I still want to argue with him sometimes and say, why use her? You're a big God. You could have found another way. You understand where I'm coming from. Nevertheless, nevertheless, he's God and I'm not. He's sovereign. My hope is not found in a shrine. It's not found in an idea, a philosophy, a theology, or even a church. My hope is found in Yahweh. That is his name. Yahweh sent his son so that I could have once and for all an opportunity to have that fulfillment of a relationship with him where he met me. A relationship with him because he cleansed my sins and, and planted his very spirit within me that his spirit would be with me and in me so that I could experience Emmanuel, God, with me everywhere I went. And in Christ, sealed by his Holy Spirit, he offered an inheritance that cannot be taken away from his true children. That can only be found in him. That's why God says, seek me. Don't go to Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't go to Beersheba. That's why when Jesus was asked by the woman at the well, your forefathers worship on this mountain, my forefathers worship on this mountain, which one are we supposed to worship on? Jesus said, a day's coming when you'll worship the one true God in spirit and in truth, in Christ, in him, we can worship the one true God in spirit and in truth. If that is not your purpose for being here, to worship him, you're here for anything else, you're here for the wrong reason. And Amos's warnings of judgment will fall on you, just like they did on the people of Israel. If you're looking for that relationship with the one true holy God, it's only gonna be found in Christ, 
all of the, the law, all of the prophets, all of those sacrifices of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Christ. And it is in him that we can find a relationship, the presence of God, and an inheritance that cannot be found anywhere else. Even in Israel's day, they should have known to seek Yahweh and not to seek the golden calves or the shrines or anything else that Yahweh was offering. They should have known to seek Him. Certainly, we live in a day when we're called to seek Him. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.